Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be reading from chapter 13. We'll be reading from Mark chapter 13, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 13, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You may all have a seat. And as you take your seats, let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. Lord, as we consider these words that you've given to your disciples and also given to us, we are reminded that we're in the midst of something much greater than ourselves. We're in the midst of a redemptive plan that you had conceived of before even the foundations of the world, and we're still living in it. And as we consider the scope of what you're doing and have already been doing throughout redemptive history, we're reminded that you are God and that we're not. You know when these things will come to pass, and we don't. And our lives and everything that seems so big and so important to us, when compared to everything that you have done and are continuing to do, just seems so small and insignificant. And yet, you the creator, you who have laid the foundations of the earth and numbered every star in the heavens, and who have formed each of us from our inward parts and breathed life into us, You've offered us forgiveness in the form of a crucified son. What good news this is. What incredible news, Lord. And what humbling news this is as well. Because, Father, this doesn't make sense to us. Our own wisdom cannot explain this. But the best of our wisdom is but foolishness to you. We are overwhelmed that such grace and mercy could be shown to sinners like us. Your wisdom is beyond our comprehension, and your love is a different kind of love that our minds could not conceive of if we weren't the recipients of it ourselves. 
Lord, we're also reminded of the destructiveness of sin. Not only in a general sense in the world at large, but the specific sins that each person here has committed against you. It was our sin that necessitated Christ on the cross, and it is our sin that prevents us from experiencing all that you desire to do in our lives as you work continually in us. But we thank you, Lord, that even our sin is not too great an obstacle for you to overcome. And I ask that you would continue to sanctify each of the members of our church. Lord, I pray for the men of our church, that they would be men after your heart, men who love you, who love your word more than they love the world and the things that the world has to offer. And they would strive after godliness and put away anything, sin or otherwise, that would hinder their pursuit of Christ-likeness. And I pray that they would not be spiritual infants, but mature men who live godly lives. I pray for the women of the church. Would you strengthen their faith and sanctify them, reminding them that godliness with contentment is great gain, and being a woman who fears the Lord is something to be greatly esteemed. Protect them from coveting the things that the world promises, choosing instead to hope in you, who are the provider of every good and every perfect gift. Lord, it is a season where many gather and spend time with loved ones, but we also know that it is also a season of much disappointment and discouragement for many. Some people will not get to see loved ones. Others have to endure the sting of broken relationships and unresolved conflicts, and still others have grief. We pray for Stephania, who recently lost her grandfather, and we lift up her family. May they find hope in the promises of your word that will strengthen their faith. It's never easy to lose someone dear to us, but we also know that this life is not the end for those who know Christ. And in the end, our grief isn't eternal, but joy will be eternal for those who place their faith in Christ. I pray that the hope that we celebrate during the Christmas season, that Christ our King has come and will one day come again, I pray that these things will be a source of joy that can't be taken away from any one of us, Lord, who have called upon the name of Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. It's good to see everyone. And I know that there are some families at home with little ones with the the sniffles. And so uh, we just want to be mindful and pray for those families and just reach out to do the best we can to stay connected. And uh, we also, um, Thomas and Isabel and Liam are here, so we're indoctrinating and bringing the young ones in. So we're thankful that Liam's able to join us this morning. And we're also thankful that a number of you here are guests with us this morning, and we're so blessed to have you. We also have some old friends, I think Chris Lim has blessed us with his presence as well. And if you're visiting with us, we still have some Advent devotionals by Sinclair Ferguson, as well as um, uh, some gentle and lowly books at the back at our visitor's station. So even if you're just sort of a a lighthouse alumnus, uh, by all means, before you leave, please uh, spend some time and connect at our our visitor's station. We just love for you to have something from us before you you head home and thank you for for joining us this morning. Well, we're back this morning into Matthew chapter 3 to the God-breathed words of 
Matthew 3, where Matthew is walking us through the ministry of John the Baptist. And I know we're a little ahead of Christmas, but in many ways it's timely because God sends John the Baptist in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 in order to prepare his people to wake them up to get their attention, but to get their hearts ready for his son, the one we've been singing about this morning, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we think about that, we think even now, the ministry of John the Baptist, how much do we need it in the busyness of life, of words that will be spoken to us that will quicken our hearts and help us to rightly appreciate and recognize how great a Savior and how great a King we have. And as we consider Matthew's gospel, how exactly does John the Baptist do this? How does he get hearts ready to receive Christ? Well, as we Noted last week, he prepares our hearts by first drawing our attention to God's word, that God speaks his love to us through his word. Sometimes that love has hard words for us, but nonetheless, it is his love. And so John the Baptist prepares hearts by drawing the people's attention to God's word. And he prepares their hearts also by showing them and by showing us our desperate, desperate need for God's mercy his compassion, his forgiveness, his care, what we don't deserve. But he also ties that all together by calling the people of God at that time, Old Covenant, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's through this message that the Holy Spirit reminds us that according to God's word, Jesus is not a man. He is both man and God. That the one who is coming is the righteous creator and judge of God's word, one to whom we all must give account. We lose sight of that in the celebrations of Christmas. We do need to see God drawing near us. And we do need to see the wonder and the miracle and what is unbelievable to see God in flesh incarnate in this tiny form of this tiny babe that a mother can hold in her arms. And it is a wonder to behold. And it is a beauty of God's love and the God, the transcendent God that we worship is also a God, the God who created the stars, who draws near And it is beautiful and wonderful to see his love, a love that draws near sinners like us. But we also have to be mindful that this is also the God to whom we must give an account, who we will one day stand before, whom every knee will bow and will confess that he is Lord. And the one to whom we will answer for every word that we have spoken, every thought that has crossed our mind. Where we give an account not just for what we do and say, but really who we are. As Danny mentioned this morning, what we are in our hearts. That message, repent for the kingdom of hand, is at hand, is, is really bringing that close to home. That there are things that we need to turn from, that there's a life that we need to turn from in order to turn towards the Lord and to do so on bended knee. And we need to do so because he is our creator and he is our judge. But he is also the king 
of God's mercy, the king of God's mercy, the one who alone offers a new life, a new beginning, a new strength to all who, by faith, call upon him to be saved. Those who really just seek him for help. That's what we talked about this morning and even as the psalm that Danny walked us through. And this, of course, is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The good news of Jesus Christ. And it's a good news that asks of each one of us, are you ready? Is this the king that you want? Is this the king that you need? Is this the king that you are prepared to receive. As we come to Matthew 3, especially Matthew 3, verse 7, Matthew shows us that according to God's word, the answer for some people to this question, is this the king you want? Is this the king you need? Is this the king that you are prepared to receive? Well, the answer for some is an emphatic no. This is not the king we want. This is not the king we need. And this is not the king that we are prepared to receive. And it's worth noticing that the people who say that are not the drunks at the local tavern. They're not the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They're not the pimps and the pushers. They are the leaders at that time of God's people. They are the elders. They're the pastors and the Bible expositors. They are specifically the people who do not want this king, who feel they don't need this king, and who are not prepared to receive this king. And John the Baptist calls them out, and he does so publicly. He does it in front of everyone else to show everyone what we really need. We need a king whose mercy exposes who we truly are and shows us what we deserve and shows us ultimately that God has provided all that we need in him. And our big truth this morning before we come to God's word as we think about this passage, Matthew 3, 1 through 10, and very specifically coming to John the Baptist calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's very easy, brothers and sisters, as we come here, the Pharisees have become sort of a caricature in American evangelicalism. We think of them as they're the hypocrites. You go through the scripture, they're the hypocrites. But in actual fact, the Pharisees, if you consider the history of the Pharisees and much of what I'll bring forth for you has come really from F.F. Bruce and his New Testament history as well as uh, Josephus' first century account. In fact, the Pharisees, Well, we're a lot closer to the Pharisees than we care to admit. And there are a lot more similarities between conservative American evangelicals and the Pharisees than typically we have presented. But the big truth I want you to consider this morning as we walk through this, I believe part of the message that John the Baptist is bringing, not just for the Pharisees, but for God's people who are watching, is that according to God's word, We need God's mercy and we need Jesus more than we care to admit. Oh yes, we need Jesus. Oh yes, we need him as our Lord and Savior. But do we really need him in the way God's word says we need him?
And do we need His mercy in the way God's Word says we need His mercy? Many times, you know, it's like we're dealing with a soda when it comes to Jesus. We prefer the light version, right? We prefer Coke Light or Coke Zero. That's the option that we want. But as we come to God's Word, God shows us the Savior that we need. And He shows us why we need it. And the Lord is doing this in love. Because the Lord wants us and desires for us. And it gives Him delight when we begin to appreciate how great His love and mercy is to us. And that very much is who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is and what He's come to bring. If you have your Bibles, turn, please, to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, few things offend professing Christians more than the suggestion that we might not be right with the Lord. Few things offend professing Christians more than the suggestion that maybe what we do is not good enough for God. Few things offend professing Christians more than the suggestion that our lives might not be as pleasing to God as we think or we hoped that we're not God's helpers, but we're the ones who need God's help. And that our lives are more broken than we care to admit. Or that maybe we desperately need God's help to fix not just what we do, but who we are. And when those things are hinted at, in counseling sessions or from the pulpit. We live in a day and age in a culture where that's considered to be unloving. How could you suggest that I'm not a good Christian? How could you suggest that I'm not right with the Lord? How could you suggest that what I'm doing, serving in the church, is not good enough for God? It's considered to be unloving. It's considered to be intolerant. It's considered to be abusive. It's considered to be gaslighting. And of course, we're just bringing into the church what 
we drink in the world. I had one pastor share with me recently how several years after moving to another church, there was still someone from the old church who still bore a grudge against him because they had not put this person in a leadership position because they were struggling spiritually. And we see that played out over and over again, the offenses and the hurt and the discouragement of why am I not good enough? And when those topics come up and we discuss those things, they're considered to be hurtful and abusive. But as we come to Matthew 3, especially verse 7, Matthew shows us that John the Baptist does more than hint and he does more than just suggest. He publicly calls out and he publicly rebukes. And it's worth noticing who he publicly calls out and who he rebukes. It's not the drunkards. It's not the bank robbers. It's not the prostitutes and it's not the tax collectors. It's the respectable religious people. It's the people who show up to the temple and to the synagogue and lead worship. It's the people who have it together the most. It's the religious people who excel in serving God and knowing his word. In fact, many of the men he's speaking to probably had the entirety of the Old Testament memorized and would not miss a feast in the temple or a Sabbath in the synagogue if their life depended on it. And these are the ones that John the Baptist publicly calls out in front of other people, rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I recall brothers sharing with me how offended that they were that John MacArthur would call out from the pulpit false teachers and name them by name, that it's unloving. But when we come and we see John the Baptist and then Jesus' ministry afterwards, our Lord and Savior has no hesitation especially people who are in positions of leadership or have exhibited ongoing pride and hardness of heart for an extended period of time, the very people who really believe they've got no problems with God. In fact, they're good with God. In fact, people should look at us about how we should do things. He publicly calls out these men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? I think it's worth taking a time and a moment to consider who they are historically because as I said, we've made a caricature of them and it's easy because we say, oh, those are the Pharisees, those are the Sadducees, that's not me. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious and political leaders of Judea. They were the first century Bible expositors. They were the first century seminarians. They were the first century preachers and pastors. They were the first century priests. And they represented the two leading movements in the first century worship of the God of Scripture. Make no mistake, they believed in God and they believed in the Bible. And they probably knew much more of it than you or I put together. The Sadducees were the Jewish aristocracy and nobility. And they were the aristocracy and nobility because they came from all the priestly families. And they could trace their genealogy back to the leading priestly families that typically ran and ruled the temple. And of course, if you run the temple, you run the entirety of the worship. And the Pharisees essentially were the rabbis. 
They led the synagogues and they taught the people the word of God. They were referred to as the Hasidim. And of course, you know, that term is still used today for Hasidic Jews, the ones who dress distinctly different and their lives revolve around the local synagogue or shul. And the Hasidim meant that they were the godly people or they were the holy people. And they were devoted to living and teaching God's word in the world. So the Sadducees were the priests who ran the temple and the temple worship, but the Pharisees were among the people. And they were all about living God's word in the world. And they were all about setting up the synagogues where they would teach people in the local community God's word, a place to gather in the community where you prayed when you couldn't make it to the temple, wherever your community was. And if you look superficially at how our churches function, our churches function superficially, very much similar to the synagogue model. In fact, when the Apostle Paul goes through the book of Acts and he's showing up to take the gospel news, he's showing up to synagogues throughout the diaspora in Asia Minor, and that's where he begins to preach the gospel. Communities of Jews far away from the temple who still gather together to learn God's word, to pray together, and to carry on the faith. Now that's the shell. I'm not saying we're the same, but brothers and sisters, our shell very much Some of that was laid out by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about living God's word. And they're not unlike many American conservative evangelicals. They're not that dissimilar from the fundamentalists. And they're not that dissimilar from many of the people who are in the Christian education movement. Because the Pharisees were very much about building a biblical worldview for Jews who were not living necessarily in Palestine or directly by the temple. That they would retain the Jewish culture and the Jewish worldview that was based in a conviction and belief in the God of Scripture. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's behind a lot of the Christian education movement, whether they be Christian schools or homeschooling. And together, the leaders of these two movements made up what was referred to as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is just a Greek word for the council. And the council was essentially what ran the Judean province, the Roman province of Judea, under Rome and before that under King Herod, who was under Rome. They basically were the figureheads, they got the tax money, they got the benefits, they ruled and they handled things like capital punishment when people got killed, but all the other stuff was run by the Sanhedrin, which consisted of the high priest who was the leader of the council, and then the Sanhedrin were the ruling party because they were the high priest and the high priestly family, and the opposition party were the Pharisees, they were the people's party the one who had influence over the people. And because they had influence over the people, they had representation and they had a say. And on that council, which sort of functioned like a Supreme Court, Congress, and the Senate all rolled into one, okay, you had these two parties competing like Democrats and Republicans for control and for influence. And ultimately, how things were going to be run in the temple and also in Palestine. And they considered in many ways what they were trying to do was they were trying to lead in their minds the Jewish state and the province of Judea biblically. And they contested and they struggled And they were political rivals in many ways 
until John the Baptist appeared. And when John the Baptist appears, suddenly we see that they drop their conflicts and they come together out to the wilderness to see what's going on. To hear this man whose message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 7, Matthew shows us John the Baptist's response to these men who are the most powerful, the most influential, and the most religious Jewish leaders of Judea coming to his baptism. And it says in verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, how's that for a VIP welcome? It would be a little bit like Senator Ted Cruz and Vice President Kamala Harris showing up at Shepherd's Conference together and John MacArthur stopping mid-sermon and from the pulpit in front of everyone saying, what are you snakes doing here? Awkward, uncomfortable, unloving. I recall when I first started and I was asked to go and speak at Pathlight and I think it was Pulse was doing this root beer kegger and they were walking around recruiting students for the root beer kegger and I made a comment from the pulpit about questioning the spiritual value of root beer keggers. And I remember some of the students in Pathlight pulled me aside and said, Pastor Mark, you can't say that. They're nice people. You don't want to offend them. Some of these people are even our friends. I mean, we get uncomfortable, right? And we understand. Even when our enemies show up, or especially when important people show up, we don't want to offend. And we understand we want to be gracious and we want to be loving. But it's interesting to know John the Baptist is just calling these folks out in front of everyone. And there is a place for that. And for first century Jews who knew their scripture, like Matthew, when they heard those words, you brood of vipers, they were aware that there was more to John the Baptist's words than just an insult. John the Baptist was not a political protester. John the Baptist was not a civil rights activist. John the Baptist was not a politician trying to make a statement. He was the voice of Isaiah 46. He was the voice of the Lord. And the words that he was saying, he was speaking the very words of God that showed who these people were. John the Baptist's words were about God's mercy exposing who we truly are. That it's a mercy from the Lord to show us who we truly are. And to put it out there from a hidden place and to put it out there in front of everyone. So that everyone can understand who we are according to God's word. That's a mercy from the Lord. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. God's mercy exposes who we truly are according to his word. God's mercy exposes who we truly are according to his word. You think about who we are as Americans, we're really all about being something different. Our parents are immigrants, the vast majority of us. You come to America to be something different, to reinvent yourself. And we come to America to become something other than what we were. It's a place of reinvention. You reinvent your gender, you reinvent your race, you reinvent your story. It's all about reinvention. But the mercy of God's word is to get underneath all these facades 
and to show us who we truly are. Now, in the eyes of many first century Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees appeared to be the most important people in God's kingdom. And this was on account of the very things that we typically use to measure godliness. What do we use to measure godliness? Religious experience, Bible knowledge and education, ministry involvement, ministry responsibility, ministry influence and impact. How many people can we gather on our ministry Instagram account or how many people can we bring to church? These were typically the things that, yes, we tend to measure someone's value in a community. What do you bring to the table? And by these standards, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had incredible value. They had high ministry involvement, high ministry responsibility, high ministry influence, great biblical knowledge, great religious experience. They were the top performers. I would kid with some pastors behind the scenes. We would joke with one another. Man, if you want to do a church plant, if you could get one or two Pharisees or Sadducees, you could really launch things for a few years, as long as you can squeeze them out before it gets going. I mean, they make things happen. They are the MVPs of the MVP. The mission, the vision, the passion, they had it all. That's why Jesus talks about what extent the Pharisees will go to make disciples and to find proselytes. They were big on evangelism and outreach and bringing people into the faith and creating God-fears. That's why you had the centurion. When you get to Acts, you've got Romans who are coming in who are God-fears. Where does that happen? It's because of proselytizing and evangelizing and making disciples. They were the MVPs of the MVP. And by most accounts, people thought these are the people who are most valuable in God's kingdom because of the MVPs of the MVP. But as the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but where does God look? The Lord looks on the heart. And from the beginning, God uses his word to mercifully cut through all our man-made facades and performances, through the fig leaves of our work and our families and our ministries, all the things that we use to give ourselves a reassurance that we're doing well with God, to expose who and what we are underneath. And that's why in Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews writes, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, he says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, now we know verse 12, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And at the end of the day, what the word of the Lord, the point that it makes, and what John the Baptist, the point that John the Baptist makes is, hey, at the end of the day, we're answerable to God. People can say everything that they want about me. At the end of the day, I answer to the Lord. And when John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers, he's shining the light of God's word on their souls. And it's connected as he shines the light. It's a theologically rich and nuanced statement that comes from the scripture. So this is not a bully pulpit. And that's the way you measure abuse from the pulpit. Okay, people? 
Yes, do people abuse the pulpit? Do they say things? Do they, they do. How do you distinguish? Because you've got to look at the heart where it comes from and is it based in God's word or is it a power play? Well, where is this coming from? Is John the Baptist just trying to take them down a few pegs? Well, he's drawing on the word of the Lord. And he's speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the word of the Lord that he's drawing upon and the light that he draws upon includes Genesis 3.15. Where God says to the serpent, the mouthpiece and the instrument of Satan, the father of lies and murder, the one who has just led Eve astray with partial truths from Scripture. The Lord says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's with these words, God shows us that beneath our politics, beneath our ministries, beneath the skin and beneath the color of our skin, we are either the seed and offspring of God's promise or we are the seed and offspring of the devil's lies. There's just two families, two people, two races. And that's what we learned this summer when we went to Romans chapter 5. The seed of the devil's lies or the seed of God's promise. Where are we? It's one or the other. Regardless of what we do at church, regardless of the songs we sing, at the heart of it, that's what we are. And that term brood in Greek is the word for offspring. The offspring, the descendants, the seed. You brood of vipers. And vipers were a very specific type of serpent. In first century Palestine, they were the little guys, the little snakes that were poisonous and deadly. And because of their size, they would lie hidden in plain sight. And they were only exposed when they would bite unsuspecting heels or hands or when they themselves were being destroyed, when they were being trampled on, or the wood or the vines that they were hiding in were burned with fire, and then they would come out. So when John the Baptist says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers, he's not making an insult. As the voice of the Lord, he's providing this theological proclamation from God's word of who and what these men are beneath their politics, beneath their religious service, and beneath their roles. That according to God's word, they are by nature the deceitful and the destructive and the poisonous seed of Satan who are hiding in plain sight as something else. And that they only show their true colors episodically when they are destroying other people with their lies or when they themselves are threatened i.e. when John the Baptist shows up and then Jesus shows up and then all of a sudden they come out of the woodworks. They're starting to feel the heat. Well, there's someone here who speaks for the Lord, but we speak for the Lord. They are the enemies of God. That's what John the Baptist is coming out and he's saying it's not just what you do and say, it's your very DNA. This is who you are. When he talks about brood or seed, he's saying it's not just your performance and what you do. It's your very nature. You are God's enemies. You are opposed to the goodness and glory of God because you are all about your own goodness and glory. 
You're just hijacking a religious system and God's word for your own benefit. Well, that's a strong word, isn't it? They are vipers who merit not God's favor or his mercy or his kingdom. They merit what? God's holy wrath. God's destruction. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And John the Baptist is pointing out, this is who you are and this is what you deserve and this is what you merit. Not by a man's standard, but this is by the word of the Lord. This is God's standard, the very word which you say you know. And this brings us to our second point this morning. God's mercy shows us the wrath we deserve according to his word. God's mercy shows us the wrath we deserve according to God's word. The conviction of many was that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when the Messiah came, that they would be the ones who were first in line. Why? Because they led the kingdom. They were taking care of the kingdom. People could see the kingdom. They could see the temple. They could see the sacrifices. They could see the results of the work, all the synagogues that were popping up. They could see the growth of the ministry, how many Gentiles were coming to believe and become God-fears and being persuaded to come to the Jewish religion. They saw this kingdom. And the conviction by many, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves, is when the Messiah comes, we're going to get a pat on the shoulder. We're going to be the first in line. And who's going to be first in line to Rule with the Messiah when the Messiah comes, God's Davidic king, to usher in God's promised Davidic kingdom. Well, who else? The guys who run the temple, the guys who run the synagogues, the guys who know their Bible, the guys who give big, who pray long prayers, the guys who are at the front of the line, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was based in many ways on a meritocracy, on what they had done for God, what they had done for God in the temple, in the synagogues, in Judea. And as we think of their economy, brothers and sisters, and how much they valued themselves based on what they had done or accomplished for God, think about that. Think about how often people, when they get together in a ministry, I want to have an impact for God. I want to be part of a ministry that has an impact for God. And it's what drives so many of our movements in the Christian church. And yet that's also the economy that is the source of so much Christian discouragement and discontent. Where our place before God, our confidence and our standing, our comfort and reassurance comes and is based on what we do for God. What we do for his church. This person gave this much. This person ran this ministry. This person preached this many sermons. And when we go down that path, brothers and sisters, who is the focus on? It's not about God and it's not about his church. It's what we do. And we hear that so often. I'm here to help you, Pastor Mark. I'm, I'm here to help God's church. We've come here because we're here to help this church. And what I typically try and say in, in a non-insulting, yes, but guess what? You're the one who needs God's help. God doesn't need your help. We need his help. Why? Because we're broken sinners inside. And when we come to a movement, all we do and all we bring to the table is we bring our sin. 
It's a miracle and it's an amazing thing that God builds his church and gives peace and grace and mercy and kindness when he packs a room filled with sinners. It's amazing what he does in a marriage where there is blessing and grace and encouragement and forgiveness and kindness because all we're bringing to that marriage is our sin and our brokenness. It's who we are. We're the enemies of God. By nature, we bite and we devour. That is how we are framed. Because we're competing for our own kingdoms. And what drives us is taking care of ourselves. And so much of biblical counseling, brothers and sisters, is trying to come alongside believers and say, okay, that's the way you used to think. The Lord has given you a new way to think. To let you know that you're a child of God, you belong to Him on your worst days and on your best days. When you do amazing and when you do terrible, God still loves you. Why? Because Christ died for your sin. And your righteousness and your beauty and your goodness is based on Him not you, not your performance. Does that take away what we do at the church? Do we not labor for good things? Yeah, we do, but we do it out of love and faithfulness. Not to validate ourselves or our relationship before God. Christ has done all the validation that we need. When John the Baptist comes to them, it's a mercy when he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What he's showing the Pharisees and the Sadducees is, hey, you're not first in line for the kingdom. You're first in line for the fire. Because beneath all this performance and the MVP of the MVP, at the heart of it, your hearts are the enemies of God. Because you refuse to look to the Lord for help. Because you believe you can do it all on your own. Because you know so much of the Bible. You sacrifice so much at the altar. You serve so much at the temple and the synagogue. You feel you have it together. You do not need God's help. You feel you're God's help to the world and God's gift to the world. You don't need God's gift. You are God's gift to the world. And because of that, what fruit you are showing is that, in fact, you are not God's helpers. You are God's enemies. You are opposed to him. You have no place and no room in your heart for a savior who is coming to fix what is broken and to deliver people from sin and to bring sinners to repentance and to reconcile them with a God of love and mercy. You've got no room for that. But John the Baptist shows them, according to God's word, what we really deserve is the holy wrath of God. And he shows that what they really deserve for this wrath of God is not simply for what we have done, but it is also for who we are, the enemies of God. Brothers and sisters, people kill snakes and vipers, not necessarily because they've been bitten. It's because of what they are and what they can do. I remember Rick Holland coming into class one time and telling us in our preaching lab how he had killed a rattlesnake in his backyard. They lived out in Santa Clarita and that's an area that's coyote and rattlesnake country and he was in his backyard and saw that there was a rattler in his garden and basically took out a shovel and proceeded to kill it. Why did he do that? The snake never bit him. Didn't bite any of his family. It wasn't a personal vendetta or vengeance. It was a destruction of something 
for what it was. It was a snake and it was a rattlesnake and it had no place in Pastor Rick Holland's home. John the Baptist's words are not a motivational threat. He's not preaching hellfire and brimstone just to get people to fill in a church or fill in a church movement. In fact, what he's doing is he's expositing the text of the Old Testament scripture about the wrath of God. And one in particular is Isaiah chapter 9, where God spells out what his people deserve and what he will do when he comes and when he draws near. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The overarching context of Isaiah is Isaiah is pleading with the people of Israel, the Judah in particular, to repent, to turn to the Lord, but very specifically to trust in the Lord, that the Lord can save them rather than trusting in the things of this world and rather than playing it fast and loose, showing up to the temple and yet in their hearts they don't trust the Lord to save them. They're just doing it like the pagan nations. And so he warns of the rebuke that's going to come so that the Lord can ultimately save them. Isaiah 9.8, he says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. Now drop down, if you would, to verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them. What's he talking about? Turning, that's repentance. To the one who struck them. That's the Lord's discipline. The Lord chastises his people. He says, you're not right. He provides discipline in different ways. He brings hardship specifically into the lives of Judah. Old Testament, okay? And they did not turn to him. We don't need your help. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. We don't need your opinion, we don't need your counsel, we don't need your help, we don't need your advice, we're fine, thank you. Verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. What does that make you think of? So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm, branch, and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, the prophet who teaches Lies is the tale. So the Lord's saying, hey, guess what? The nation as a whole is not repenting and turning to me. I've disciplined them and they won't come to me and seek my advice and counsel. Guess what? I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring rebuke. And I'm coming for the leadership. I'm coming for the elders and the honored man, the Sanhedrin. I'm coming for the prophets who teach lies. And for those who guide this people, verse 16 have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless. This is who you are, not just what you do. Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. 
Now Isaiah is talking to the nation or kingdom of Judah in the Old Testament. But there is a principle and application that is fulfilled in John the Baptist's coming. If God hated leaders who were prideful and who were pompous, and who gave themselves and the people all manner of false assurance based on them and what they did. Do it like me. I'm the standard. If you can do it like me, you're doing great. If you worship like me, you sacrifice like me, you serve like me, okay? Isaiah points out to us that those things are an expression of an evil heart that is opposed to the love and grace and mercy of God. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And the refusal to go and humble yourself before God, the refusal to come to God and say, God, we need help because we're broken and we're an offense to you. Okay, the refusal to do that That's not what makes you a sinner. What makes you a sinner is a heart that is opposed to the Lord. That at the end of the day, just like Adam and Eve, we're more interested in ourselves than we are in the Lord. And according to God's word, the wrath of God is not like the anger of men. It's not fickle and arbitrary vengeance. It's not like many of us what we've experienced in our families. It's not God subjectively flying off the handle because he's had a bad day. The wrath of God is his holy, his personal, his intentional, his objective grievance and displeasure and anger against all that is wicked and evil and unjust. There's a reason that as you go through the Psalms, the psalmist many times appeals to the wrath of God or has hope in the wrath of God. Why? Because the steadfast love of God endures forever because God is just and he's right and he's good and he hates what's evil. And the psalmist is witnessing all the evil that he sees around them, including his own friends, including people in the court, including people going into the house of God with him. And his hope comes in God's justice and his righteousness and holiness. And he goes to the Lord and says, Lord, they can't see it, but you see it and you hate it. My hope is that you are good and you are just and you hate what is wrong. Not only for yourself, but for your people. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the Lord. It's not just for himself. His hatred of evil and his hatred of wickedness and his hatred of sin is what it does to his creation and the people he's created and those he loves. He hates it. I can only think that Pastor Rick Holland destroying that serpent in his backyard is because of the hatred for what that serpent would do to his children if they happened to go back into the garden. God's wrath is an aspect of his pure and holy love for all that it is good. And that's why, brothers and sisters, God's wrath is good. And if you truly love what is good, brothers and sisters, you will hate what is evil. And so scripture describes God's wrath 
as part of his sovereign plan of salvation. And he describes a present wrath, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And in Romans 1, that present wrath that we're living in in America right now is God giving, as you read the rest of Romans chapter 1 and 2, the wrath of God is revealed. The present wrath is God giving people over to their sin and their desires. You want to chase the world. You want to chase the flesh. You want to chase pride. You want to do what you want. You believe that you can do it apart from me. You want everything except God. Go at it. That's God's wrath. He's going to let you go. And he's going to allow you to experience it to the fullest. And he's going to allow it for you to become enslaved and your heart to become hardened and for you to see the full devastation and ugliness of what it is to turn your back on the mercy and grace of God. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're living in in America today, right? Our Instagram accounts, our social media accounts, our TikTok accounts, straight through as we get to look at that 24-7. And as Americans, we're eating ourselves to death. And we're shooting ourselves to death. You want firearms? I'll give you firearms. Go at it. If this is where you're going to find your security and your manhood, then you're going to have these schools that are shot up. And this isn't just me, brothers and sisters. Dr. MacArthur has made this point over and over again. We are living Romans 1.18 onwards. But there is also, brothers and sisters, a wrath to come. And the wrath to come, referenced in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, is a wrath of God, His intervention, His heavy hand that comes with the tribulation and that leads up to the final judgment, where the full extent of His wrath and fury is unleashed as He has given us time after time after time after time in His patience and kindness to repent, to turn to Him, to save us from our sins. Well, how is it loving and merciful to tell someone that they deserve the wrath of God? How loving and merciful is it to tell someone that what's coming for them is a fire that is going to burn? How is it a kindness and mercy to come face to face with what the word of the Lord has to say about his wrath and his anger and to hear that we are not right with God or we are his enemies? Well, brothers and sisters, there are a few things worse than having someone upset with you and you don't know why they're upset with you. Have you ever experienced that? A family member, a spouse perhaps, a coworker, someone who is upset with you or angry with you, but they will not say or they will not express. And you have no idea why they're angry with you. And so all that you can do is to live with the silent treatment or end up in the doghouse until that person decides to let you out and let you know that it's over. And even then, many times, they don't tell you why they're upset with you. That so much is human wrath, but God's wrath is different. What's merciful and kind about God's wrath is through his scripture, he lets you know exactly what he's upset about. This is what I'm upset about. I'm upset that your heart is turned away from me. 
I'm upset, as he said, that you do not seek me. I'm upset that you do not inquire even after I discipline you repeatedly. I'm upset that you believe that you're God because you can fix your own problems and instead you suppress the truth of God with a lie. It's a kindness and a love and a mercy, brothers and sisters, where God lets us know exactly where we stand and why we have incurred his displeasure and his grievance and what's wrong with our lives. Why? Because he is the remedy. And we see in the ancient Near East and in the Judea of Israel and from Adam and Eve onwards that what offends and grieves God is who we are deep down inside, our nature. And this is the point that the John the Baptist is making when he comes to the end and says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Put away your false presumptions. Show who you really are. Do what you should do. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's pointing out this fact that ultimately what you need is not performance and more works you need to become something completely different. You need to become a good tree. And there is one who can do it. It's God. Will you place your trust in him to give you a new heart and a new life and a new beginning and a new kingdom? But are you willing to start at the bottom? Unless you become as little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, well, that was the Pharisees. And the reason that John the Baptist is calling them out, let's make this point. He's not doing it privately. He's not pulling them over and saying, hey, Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, you're kind of off. He's doing it publicly in front of everyone. Why? Because he wants everyone to see, hey, this is the poster child of righteousness. Look at who they are and look at where this is going to lead you because there's a good chance that many of you are on the same path or have the same patterns. And all we need to do, brothers and sisters, is to think of ourselves because really it comes down to what he's exposing for the Pharisees and Sadducees is. What they really believe in is in themselves. Their accomplishments, their works, their descendant from Abraham, their Jewish heritage, their role in the temple. And they believe so much in themselves, brothers and sisters, there's no room to believe in God. And if there's no room to believe in God and his wrath, and there's no belief that they're going to receive the wrath of God or that they're a grievance to God, then there's no room to believe in a son of God who has come to die on the cross and bear the wrath of God for his people. Don't need it. We're good to go. Now, brothers and sisters, before we point our fingers at them, let's think about ourselves. Yes, we profess that we believe in God, but do we really believe in God? What is it that has preoccupied our lives over the past year? How much have our lives been focused on? Our own glory, our own goodness, our own comfort. How often are we focused on our reassurance of what we do in the church, how much Bible we read, how much prayer we do, how much biblical counseling homework do we do? And that's not to diminish those things, brothers and sisters. But none of those things are going to save you. 
Because John the Baptist's point is that there is only one who can save you from the wrath of God, the one who can bear the wrath of God, and the one who can give you a new heart, a new life, a new kingdom, a new strength, a new power that comes from above, that is not based on your MVP of the MVP. And this brings us to our final point, which we'll close with this morning. God's mercy shows us that what we really need according to God's word is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Brothers and sisters, unless you appreciate where you stand with the Lord, unless you appreciate that His wrath is real and He has great displeasure against those who believe in themselves rather than the Lord, you have no need for God's mercy and you have no need for a Savior who has borne the wrath of God on your behalf. If you have your Bibles and you see Isaiah 9, I'll close with this. Have a look at Isaiah 9 too. Same chapter that talks about the wrath of God. Isaiah 9 too. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 6, for us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the passage and proclamation that precedes the declaration of God's wrath towards a people who will not turn to him. It's what we sing in Handel's Messiah. It's what we talk about at Christmas. And the reason it's here in Isaiah's prophecy of which John the Baptist is the partial fulfillment as the voice in Isaiah 40 is God showing his people there is a place of joy. There is a place of laughter. There is a place of happiness. There is a place of celebration. But that place is found in my son, Jesus Christ. And it is found in the Prince of Peace who does not avoid or diminish or minimize the wrath of God. But instead, he will bear the fullness of it for his people. Is this the king you want? Is this the king you need? Is this the king that you are prepared to receive? Brothers and sisters, if the answer is yes, then you will see that this is a king who will set you free from your anxieties and fears which are so wrapped up in your own performance and inadequacies and instead will provide the strength and courage that comes from above. Even as Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? Because the life that they have is a life that comes from Christ himself. Close in prayer. Lord Jesus, your warning of wrath is a mercy that shows us 
the magnitude of your love and the greatness of what we need. Lord Jesus, give us hearts that look to you, that are willing to abandon our self-confidence and our pride. But instead, Lord Jesus, we'll bask and celebrate in the Prince of Peace, a God who reconciles us because you yourself have borne the wrath that we deserve. May you be the star of our Christmas this year. In your name we pray, amen.